Hello, my name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital editor of Film Comment. Ah, December. As the air grows colder, critics huddle together not for warmth, but to vote on the best films of the year. At Film Comment, we asked our all-star roster of contributors to vote this year. And with all the ballots counted, the best distributed films of 2016 are, at number 10, No Home Movie by Chantal Ackerman, at number 9, Things to Come by Mia hansen Love. Number eight, Aquarius by Clever Mendonça Filho. And number seven, Manchester by the Sea by Kenneth Lonergan. And number six, Patterson by Jim Jarmusch. And number five, Certain Women by Kelly Reichert. And number four, Cemetery of Splendor by Apichapong Wirasethical. And number three, L by Paul Verhoeven. Number two, Moonlight by Barry Jenkins. And at number one, Tony Erdman by Maren Ade. For the full 20, and to see our list of the best undistributed films, visit filmcomment.com. In this episode, I was joined by editor Nicholas Rapold and Film Society of Lincoln Center Director of Editorial and Creative Strategy, Michael Koreski, to discuss the results and the poll's surprises and quirks. Here's our conversation. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor, and today I'm joined by... Nicholas Rapold, editor of Film Comment. Michael Koreski, editorial director of Film Society and Lincoln Center. And on this uh, very special, very auspicious episode of the podcast, we are going to be discussing the best released films of 2016 list, which will also serve as sort of a appraisal of the poll system the system by which all movies are understood and enter the annals of history. Basically, uh, this year, as I understand it, the poll, we operated it a little bit differently than in past years. Nick, could you talk through that decision to sort of do things a little differently? Well, this year, the poll's contributors are the contributors to the magazine, Yeah, basically. The intent was to make the focus more a film comment voice. There are a lot of polls now. There actually weren't so many polls. Uh, when we first started doing ours. And uh, this is a kind of way of, you know, refocusing and trying to express a distinctive voice. That's that's the kind of philosophy behind it. Speaking about what's on this list and what's not, part of what we'll be discussing today are films that we feel should be on this list, but are not. And I think, especially considering that awards are such an important part of when films are released... Uh, certain films do tend to sort of fall in the cracks or people aren't able to see them before these polls start circulating. And I guess, why do you feel that there's sort of a um, push to get these lists out earlier and earlier? I mean, I believe the first deadline of a poll that I was asked to participate in was about a month ago, which is crazy. But either one of you can respond to that. Well, I mean, I, I I don't know how you feel. I feel like it's a it's just a symptom of of this terrible thing called award season, mm-hmm. where we increasingly aren't able to judge movies' uh, artistic merit unless they have either um, a ranking or a medal to go along with them to, to to validate them. Obviously, this is something that, as a serious magazine like Film Comment, both works would work against philosophically, but also uh, recognizes the importance of. I would assume. Mm-hmm. Um, and I certainly find them entertaining and fun, polls and awards and all that. But when they start to drive the conversation, I get a little suspicious. And then this move to move things earlier and earlier, and I'm thinking more specifically of um, awards. I know that they started giving the Critics Awards in the end of November this year, so right when Thanksgiving was done, and I was yeah. finally feeling better after all the 
mashed potatoes had settled. Um, I saw the first <laughs> awards have been given um, often to movies that have not been re- <laughs> released to most people. So it's also yeah. very insidery. So usually these awards are given and the, the general public can do nothing but sit back and nod and say, oh, I, I, I hope that's good when I get to see it someday. Yeah, yeah I mean, just to I mean, expand on, on, on the question of why some films that you might expect to be on a list are not on a list, it should be a boilerplate, I think, to any discussion of polls, whether the contributors have been able to see all the films that they could possibly vote on. So, you know, I think critics are in a different situation than audiences going to the movies because they see things in advance. That's an obvious thing to say. So obviously they're, they're seeing things that haven't come out yet. But that, what that also means is that not every movie can be previewed for the press corps mm-hmm. in time for the poll deadlines. And I think we'll see in this conversation that there are definitely a handful of titles and maybe one or two especially prominent ones uh, that you will not find uh, highly ranked. And that's partly because we'll never really know because they weren't able to be considered in time by a large portion uh, of, of, of critics. And I just think that bears repeating because year in, year out, it happens that there are movies that are screened for critics later in December uh, and it makes it harder for critics just to vote on them at all one way or another, whether you think they're deserving or not. Yeah. And and that's just something I, I can't repeat enough because it really, it does kind of skew the results in, in a way that they shouldn't. And I think also this has to do with the culture of what film festivals have become now, where it's a lot of times it's sort of like a test ground for titles that are going to, or a place where films can pick up awards, be part of a prestigious selection or win a specifically an award either from a, like a jury or, you know, the audience and then use that momentum to sort of fuel later Oscar-y, Golden Glowy sort of. It's also just weirdly self-defeating, I think, for the studios to, to release films later and later because they're doing it if they're doing it to get Oscars. Yeah. So if you're if they're releasing Silence, say, on December 25th, part of it is because they're working and working till the end, but they're they're working and editing and getting it finished in time for Oscar season, for mm-hmm. Oscar consideration. And But at that point, that's when all of the Critics Awards are done. Mm-hmm. That's when all the lists have been made for the most part. It didn't used to be like that. I remember way back when reading the Boston Globe, the best of the year came out on New Year's. That's how it should be, I yeah. think, for, um, for um, newspapers especially. But yeah, so what happens is they don't get considered for these awards. The awards, the Critics Awards, which are the precursors, which lead to the Oscars. So it actually ends up backfiring a lot of the time. And I wish that they would reconsider when they release things. But then again, you also have this problem of people needing to be first, first, first. And that's also a symptom of the just uh, a social media culture where everybody has to be the first to give their opinion on something. And so it just, it's just getting, it's like Christmas season itself. You know, <laughs> you start to, you're seeing Santa Clauses and candy canes the day after Halloween these uh, these years. So I like anyway. to start in July. Yeah, that's a very German thing, right? <laughs> Eight months of Christmas. But um, yeah, I also think um, to, to sort of expand on your point a little bit that the internet loves lists. The internet is so much about lists that to the point where there is information is telegraphed in shorter and shorter and shorter to the point where it's like I'm reading a headline and I know the story that... I think, to sort of discuss how polls are made, sort of what the point of them is, is important and that not everybody necessarily likes doing polls, but we do them. And we do say all this. Yes. Although we stand by this list because yes. we, um, it, it's good to get 
within, I would say, a, a niche audience, like film comment readers and writers, to get a consensus of what the, the important films to look at, mainstream films to look at mm-hmm. during the year are. And I think that it serves a purpose for sure. And especially for people who maybe don't live in cool parts of the country, bubbly parts of the country, uh, different bubbles that, you know, this is always like, it's always exciting to see like what's coming down the pipeline to you and you can adjust accordingly. But because this is sort of a different year where we can, I don't want to say stand by the list more than we have in the past, but that it's more representative of the writers that we have in the magazine. I thought it'd be great if we could go through the top 20 and talk about films that we're particularly excited to see here that we're sort of championing personally. For me, obviously, Cemetery of Splendor, which I got to speak to Apichapong, we're ethical about back in late February. That was one of my personal favorites. I think um, it's a film that definitely is, you know, given political events in this country is even more relevant than ever. And just sort of exploring through, you know, these really exquisite uh, visual metaphors through a landscape, a political situation that you can't necessarily speak out against. I think it's just fantastic. And it's really one of Apichapong's best films. But Nick, what would you say? I would agree. We put it on the cover. Uh, and he wrote the cover story, a wonderful cover story. And I actually, weirdly, the first time that he has been on, on the cover of Film Comment. So that's a particular point of pride for us, I think. I, I'm happy with the blend of films that are on the top 20. I, I, I do think it feels like a very potent blend. I'm making it sound like coffee, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I really do like it a lot. I'm especially happy at a movie that just kind of uh, squeaked into the top 20. And uh, it, that is The Other Side by Roberto Minervini. Actually, a movie that showed at Cannes now, I think. Two years ago. Two years ago, but uh, wasn't released until uh, this past spring in, at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. And a good thing it was, uh, because it's, a, it's just a movie that only gained an increased resonance with, with what's happened recently, um, with the election and, and, and just a, a new outlook for the country and a new perspective on the country and what, what its identity is or is not. And, and just, I guess, a new grappling for, for that identity that's, that's kind of out in the open now, which I guess maybe happens at the end of any longer, uh, you know, any two-term presidency. But uh, this change feels particularly extreme. But the other side, as a film, it's a movie that goes in deep into the, the heart of America to talk about. It's, and it's, it's nonfiction, but has, uh, you know, elements of performance. Uh, and it just has, it's, it, the film itself has a rupture in it that for me began to feel a bit like the, the break between uh, Obama and uh, the forthcoming president-elect. And for those reasons, it's nice to see it there because this is also a movie that a lot of people haven't seen. So it must have meant a lot for the people who did see it yeah. <laughs> to put it on their list. So I hope it's something that people will be able to uh, track down and, and watch. Yeah, the other side is a, it's a shocker. And I, I, I use that in the best possible sense because the, a movie that I'll talk about later is meant to be a shocker and uh, that I feel genu- genuinely isn't because it tries so hard to be one. Whereas The Other Side is a film that genuinely startled me. I think it gets at some harsh truths about America that people didn't want to face until the election. Yeah. <laughs> and now if you watch that movie post-election, it's, it's, it's all there. Right. Um, it's 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 an it's an alarming film. It's an embedded film. You know, this this filmmaker is originally from Italy. He was in Texas, and he like really lived with the people, and he gets them to do things on camera that are 
pretty incredible, frankly. And like you said, there's this rupture without without spoiling it, but the last half hour or so, maybe 20 minutes or so, are quite different from what you've seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do urge people to stick with it. It's it's a little tough going, but once you get to that point where it breaks, it becomes a whole other movie. So it's pretty amazing. I'm glad I made the list too. And another, another movie I'm, I'm proud that Film Comment was able to cover at length pretty early on. Pinkerton wrote a feature about yes. it early, early in the year. You were going to talk about it, V. Oh, the movie that I'm uh, really excited about and happy that it made the list, made the top 10, actually, because I, I, I wasn't sure it would, because I, I can't really gauge the support of it. Everyone seemed to like it when it came out, but it was released by a pretty small distributor and seemed to disappear pretty fast, um, which is Aquarius. Mm. Um, really pretty amazing Brazilian film by Kleber Mendoncha Fizio. Mm. And it stars Sonia Braga in what I think is the performance of the year, in a year of great performances, I must say, as a middle-aged woman who refuses to leave her apartment that she lived in for decades, and they're turning into condos. that say they, a pretty nefarious real estate development company, is turning it into condos, and she refuses to leave, so she's the last holdout. And uh, this is another one of those movies that just, it felt exciting and political when I saw it, and now it feels even more exciting and political post-election. It's a movie about resistance. It's a movie about um, moral rot and standing up to moral rot. I mean, it has a last shot that's literally about moral rot. (laughs) It sent me out on just like waves of pure joy and ecstasy, even though it's also kind of like a uh, a gripping, penetrating character study. It, it, it has this great, like I, the, like I just described, it has this great central plot, this great idea, but it's really just, um, it's, it's, it's a way of getting at both a deeper portrait of this woman and her life and her sexuality and her being and her family and everything about her and also um, this political situation in Brazil. And it's, it, it's become a, a talking point there and here actually, for there were a lot of Brazilians in New York who were actually yeah. protesting the movie at the festival, but not because they were protesting the movie. They were, they were there to support it in protest of the people who were against it. So they were actually holding up signs during the screenings of the film, basically because the, the director of the film had spoken out against what was happening to the president in Brazil during Cannes, so it became a talking point. Yeah. But it has to exist outside of all that because it's just this exquisite film. Exquisite. Mm-hmm. I, 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 it was one of those movies where every shot, every cut you think, so much thought went into this, and uh, I've seen it twice, and I'm going to keep revisiting it. So I'm happy it's in the top ten. I was I'm gratified by that. Yeah, I think it's all funny. We picked very overtly political films, <laughs> films that we're we're glad to see on this list. But well, also just that 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 film. I I always it felt political. It was exhilaratingly political yeah. when I saw it. But after the election, it just feels even more urgent. And I don't mean that in the cliched way that people have been saying. Well, I mean it, yeah. it genuinely. And the reason is because it is what it is. It's mm-hmm. true to itself. It has something to say, and and it's leaping off the screen even more in yeah. retrospect. And I mean, not to sound like a total Marxist, which I may or may not be, but uh, we live in spectacular times, and that is something that is going on across the globe where we are seeing a real sort of turn towards really hard-nosed conservatism that is sort of unprecedented. Maybe we now we could switch it uh, towards films that didn't make the didn't make the top 20, but we either because they sort of fell between the cracks or because they, you know, they sort of fell into that no man's land. They didn't get screened to enough people or just not enough people voted for them. So, Nick, would you like to start? Sure, I would love to start. Um, and I, I guess the picture I choose is a picture. It's a real motion picture. It's uh, Arrival, uh, it, it directed by Denis Villeneuve, who I think is really extremely skillful at shaping the atmosphere and texture 
um, in his films, uh, just in a really you know, all enveloping way, his use of, of, of very moody and, and, and subtly drawn visuals in, in the framing and also how, how thoroughly he, he, he designs the sound as well. Um, you know, whether it's a big film like Arrival um, or, a, you know, a, what almost feels like a one-off enemy, which is, is just, just as much you're going into like a tunnel in, into someone's mind. Uh, and Arrival, I, I, I like Arrival too because it feels like it strikes a number of chords and it kind of gets maybe treated a little unfairly like a Hollywood picture about making connections and communicating and understanding one another uh, which I think really reduces it just to a little, you know, blurb. Mm-hmm. But watching it, uh, you, I think you somehow really feel the stakes that are, that are uh, you know, that, that, that the movie has, which are both kind of personal for Amy Adams' character, um, which she's able to get across in, in, in her usual, just saying she is like a transparent actress sounds like a criticism, but I actually just mean that she's so much able to channel uh, emotions from, from moment to moment. But but not not only on that personal level, but also just I feel like the movie uh, is almost like a metaphor for filmmaking. Somehow I feel it must be connected to something in Villeneuve's mind as a filmmaker uh, that so much rests this entire endeavor of the human race rests on 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 her successfully getting something across, which is kind of what art so much of art is about is is actually getting across to someone who something to someone who may or may not be receptive or understand it or want to understand it especially if it's something totally foreign so in that sense arrival had maybe more i don't know more meaning than you might expect just from i don't know it's yeah it's a little blurb about you know global unity mm-hmm. or something so i liked it also you know if um Interstellar, uh, I don't know, it's just kind of an interesting reply to Interstellar in some ways. Another movie with a redhead trying to figure some space stuff out. <laughs> you see what happens. <laughs> Michael, what's yours? I'm just glad to know that it's better than Prisoners. Denise Villeneuve's <laughs> repulsive. I was no prisoners. fan. I was no fan of Prisoners, I have to tell you. So it's not like I came in, you know. Oh, mine is Sunset Song, which was a film comment cover. Mm-hmm. and which is a wonderful film by the wonderful director, Terrence Davies. And um, I guess if you've seen it, the film's merits are clear. <laughs> it's it's a beautiful old-fashioned epic, but done in a, a very personal way by Terrence Davies, who can't help but make everything he does so incredibly personal. And, I mean, everything about it is just so... Um, intimate and spectacular at the same time. It's, it's the, it has 65 millimeter film on the outdoor scenes. The interiors are shot with this gorgeous Vermeer-like light on digital video. Um, and it's this coming of age story of a young woman. And it's about her coming into her own as a, as a person, as a farmer and as a lover. And as, uh, it's, it's about violence and war. And it just, it, it, gets at so much in the course of its two hours and 20 minutes that most films, you know, would, would just dream of uh, getting it and just one of those things. And I guess I, I bring it up not just because it's a great movie, but because I feel like one of the reasons it might not have made the top 10 is because it just doesn't announce itself as anything particularly trendy or, or exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, because of that, it also just kind of fell under the radar for a lot of people. I think it, it, it got great reviews. People who saw it loved it and talked about it and tried to impress upon people how important it was to see this film. But um, it just kind of disappeared a little bit. And that's 
and it almost made the top 20. It's, it's almost there on the ranking. But for a film of such extraordinary qualities and depth and cinematic qualities, which are rare, um, it's just too bad. So I just want to urge everybody to see Sunset Song. I know that at this point it's streaming, I suppose, mm-hmm. if you want to see it at home or on your damn computer or your phone, even though it's a real, real big screen movie. Okay, so, David Lynch. I'm sorry. I feel the same way. I was just talking to someone about um, someone who's going to watch Tony Erdman um, on a screener, and I thought, oh, geez. Oh, geez. <laughs> I just want to point out that, I mean, it's it's funny how, you know, you can just yearn for a certain level of cinematic uh, <laughs> accomplishment, you know, between Sunset Song and, uh, you know, Arrival in, in a different kind of way. It, it's just... And it's, I don't know, with Sunset Song, it's crazy that a movie like that can kind of, in some ways, come and go, you know? And, yeah. And, and that, and Aquarius too, you know, which Michael, you also were just talking uh, eloquently about, like that as well. It's, you know, that a movie like that can kind of come and go uh, in, in, in the middle of a fall um, is. Yeah. Well, they're not hot topics, especially Sunset Song. I mean, you can, you could, I, I really do think that this is no slag on the distributor. Distributors have a certain budget they work with. I, it's, it was a small distributor. A, a larger distributor, if they had had Aquarius, would have really pushed the narratives of that. They would have yeah. pushed the Sony Braga narrative. They would have pushed the politics. It would have become something. I guarantee it would have become Even something. Even her. Uh, yeah, it's just bizarre. It's just bizarre to me. You know, we're heading into award season, as we said, our favorite time of year. Yeah, it's so exciting. Everyone's like, oh, is Emma Stone yeah. going to finally win a rest? She's overdue. She's 25. She, <laughs> they got to give her an Oscar already. Oh, mate. Um, you know, and if she doesn't, maybe Natalie Portman will get her second. You know, it's just this gar- the, this garbage conversation. Um, but she you have someone won? like Black Swan. Oh, gross. <laughs> How could you forget? Blech. Um, but <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? All right, sorry. Continue. Continue. You don't remember that Natalie Portman won an Oscar? <sighs> she beat Annette Benning, which is going to happen again this year. I'm going to, I just blocked it out. Oh, my um, God. Yeah, anyway. So, but yes, Sonia Braga very clearly should be in these conversations if these conversations have to be happening. And yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's upsetting, but what can you say? As I established before, the world is, uh, we're just living through a really perverse time and we just have to try and make the best of it. <laughs> Movies are a bomb. Movies are but a bomb. We speak to you from a bunker deep below the earth. <laughs> the, the mortars are distant but distinct. <laughs> Ryla, don't don't you have yours that you yes do? Okay. yes I do. Speaking of faith and torment, um, I have to mention a film that is coming out on Jesus's birthday, made by Martin Scorsese called Silence. I saw it uh, recently and I was completely blown away by it. It's a fascinating period in Japanese history, to be sure. Um, I don't think one that people are necessarily super familiar with in the West, um, but it is it's part of what makes that country unique. Uh, that particular period in history. Uh, where you know the island sealed itself off with the exception of a handful of port cities and only very specific people, foreigners, were allowed to trade with the Japanese in these ports. The rest of the country was completely isolated from the rest of the world. But even to say that the film is about that is such a limited reading of, the, of silence because it's about so many different things. If you're not even religious, I think it will make you understand faith and it will also make you understand sacrifice and just it really explores the contours and nuances of what faith is what it means to go on a missionary mission to have maybe your message misunderstood like and to to accept that or not and what you know what it means yeah it's just such a wonderful exploration of so many different things and just also 
formally, it's one of the most amazing things that I've seen, uh, especially the the beginning is like, I won't spoil anything for anybody, but it opens in these uh, hot springs, onsen, which are like uh, boiling, boiling, boiling water. And so there's lots and lots of steam going up in the air. And it's just like any, it's just like so many classic, classically beautiful Japanese fil- historical films. Obviously, I don't. I don't even need to say like, don't mess it because like, come on. But the fact that the film is being boiled down to, by certain critics, as um, oh, just another white guy trying to find his faith is shows you like if you if you want to boil this film down to that, there's something like there's something wrong with you. Like, go get help, <laughs> get professional help. <laughs> You're sick. <laughs> um, and that's all I have to say about that. And um, we were talking about consensus earlier and maybe in the spirit of complicating the idea of consensus even though we all seem pretty happy with what's on the list is there any are there any titles you have uh reservations about or maybe a bone to pick um i have one (laughs) (laughs) though i don't want to go too in depth it's not a film that i hate at all but it's a film that i'm i i i'm I'm doubtful of which is l paul verhoeven's l Mm -hmm. and for a divisive film i'm surprised how high it is it's actually number three on the list, and that's that's very high for a film that um, I think is um, trying to shock and trying to start a conversation. Usually, they they tend to um, they tend to have as many people dislike them as like them. Well, but especially at, Verhoeven. Especially Verhoeven. I, but I think this is part of like the Verhoeven, um, you know, recouping campaign or something. Obviously, he's a talented filmmaker, and I've liked a lot of his uh, films that he's done. And I think Isabel Huppert is the only actress who could have played this part, um, and I think that she's wonderful in it. At the same time, I I really do think that it's um, more of a conversation piece than a movie, and mm-hmm. I tend to distrust that. And it's it, it's trying very hard to needle and provoke the viewer in questions about rape and representations of rape and women's responses to rape. And I I find it I find it kind of a hectoring experience, even though um, there's a certain I wouldn't say there's a gravity to it at all, but there's a there's an elegance to the construction at the very least. And I, I really do prefer Verhoeven in his like trashy, big budget, balls to the wall <laughs> Hollywood um, vernacular than this, where this this kind of felt like warmed over a Claude Chabrol to me. Mm. What about Ouch. <laughs> but I know Nick loves it, and I know that a lot of people. Mm. Though we had a very fascinating and wonderfully written piece by the eminent Molly Haskell on the film, which is a, which was actually a dissenting piece as well. Yeah. But it ended up number three on the poll. So there you go. And I still haven't seen it. So it just goes to show you. <laughs> I would have liked to have heard your take. I'm no. curious. Well, I, I'll get around to it on a, on a tiny, tiny, the tiniest screen possible. <laughs> Itty bitty, a Barbie screen. Where it belongs. <laughs> Talk about Tony Erdman and uh, Moonlight, which are the top two movies on this list. Un- unsurprising choices, but gratifyingly so, mm-hmm. I would say. Um, I loved both movies, especially. Special, well, I wouldn't say especially Tony Erdman's. Uh, Tony Erdman, they both feel kind of like game-changing movies in a way, so I, I understand why they'd be number one and number two. I had a thrilling time watching both of them twice. I saw each twice. Um, Tony Erdman, uh, the first time uh, in a little dark screening room with like two other people in the room, and even though nobody was making a sound, I was just like elevated out of my seat, and I thought, I want to watch this with an audience, and then I saw it with a huge audience in New York Film Festival, and it, it was it was like pandemonium it was like there's something about mary or something was playing people were just like on the floor um i love that a that a german art film can can do that to people mm-hmm. uh, yeah it's i guess I, I would say the same thing it's it's a it's a movie that's really doing something new 
and same with Moonlight. And I guess the voters came together and uh, coronated those two movies. Uh, <laughs> God. <laughs> And now they receive a scholarship to the, the, the state university of their choosing. Congratulations, Tony Erdman and Moonlight. Let's all applaud while they come down the aisle. Here they come. And, and, and just well, I was, I was just going to praise uh, Tony Erdman, not just because uh, people find it funny, but I think that it's a very excellent representation of work culture. And that was actually what took what Maren Ade really studied very hard. And I mean, that's part of the reason why it's three hours long, it's because it is such a fascinating explore, exploration of um, how consultants work and also just how, you know, we... we we in America, you know, we think, oh, yeah, we're the cultural imperious. Well, no, German, Germany can also do that, too, to other parts of the Eastern Bloc. So get into that. And also it's it's interesting that this uh, it's kind of a portrait of downsizing and outsourcing. Yeah. Um, nested within a father-daughter relationship. Exactly. Dramedy. Yes. <laughs> for, lack for, for lack of a much better term. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, 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 I guess that's a, a, a common theme with some of the things that the, the politics in these movies kind of sneak up on you. Um, mm-hmm. I would say that was that was true of Aquarius and Other Side and Moonlight. It's true of it's true of Moonlight as well. Yeah. Yeah. It was just I think I don't think that film gets spoken about enough in terms of how formally beautiful it is, mm-hmm. which I think is a shame. Uh, it's usually because I obviously the narrative is ex- sort of exquisitely shaped, and then just how how beautiful everything looks, the use of music, the little like tip of the cap to uh Wong Kar Wai with the use of Kukuru Paloma like just all there's just so many little things that are just make it wonderful to behold so hell yeah true of so many films here so many little things like certain women who's gonna forget yeah every little thing that happens in that diner between Kristen Stewart and Lily Gladstone everything's (sighs) great in that Laura Dern is great she's an under discussed Mm -hmm. element of that film Laura Dern is superb yeah but those scenes in the diner you know if I, if I had to like capture one one moment from from a movie mm-hmm. i would put a, i would say that the diner scenes between lily gladstone and kristen stewart are even more exciting than the diner scenes uh, between andre holland and trevante rhodes in moonlight mm-hmm. um though the latter is more talked about and there's more at stake and it's a little more dramatic yeah. but there's a similar thing going on actually just kind of like sussing out each other's motivations over plates of delicious looking food this is now making me think of other great eating scenes from on the top 20 i'd have to say no home movie yes the kitchen meal well Chantal ackerman's mother is so impressed that her daughter can cook that's right she's just like as if she never she never knew oh my daughter knows how to make this yeah <laughs> dish. yeah and, and and the uh casual dining talk <laughs> that they have which goes to the heart of both their histories and the history of the world mm-hmm. so that's another great moment in dining mm-hmm. on screen unfortunately there was no good dining in the lobster so the title was misleading <laughs> I, I i don't know i just also randomly want to speak up for a couple of other titles on here that people might not expect one would be kaylee blues oh yes uh, by be gone and i'm i'm happily maybe a bit surprised to find it on there but that's that's where the, the vote tally went and that's a movie everyone should see. And another movie that's just a, it's a beautiful demonstration of technical craft uh, and, and a just kind of beguiling sense of time. Uh, and then a very different sort of movie, Everybody Wants Some, uh, Richard Linklater. Uh, you know, we're talking about 
politics are coming up a lot. This is a movie maybe that has the least to do with politics yeah. <laughs> explicitly, you know, of, of any of these films, but is is just great at capturing a particular, like so many of Linklater's films, a particular phase of life and, and, and the way you move through it and, you know, the bonds between people in a, in a group in, in, in this particular one. And just pointing out those two, I think also Love and Friendship with Stillman, yes. a movie that's actually has done pretty well in terms of just box office this year, but for some reason falls out of a number of conversations to a certain extent. I don't really know why that is, or maybe that's a wrong perception. But. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I think it's done, again, I think there's sort of a tendency to not take comedy as yeah. seriously as drama and to say like, oh, this isn't, or appreciate it as hard, let's say, but yeah. I think uh, what Whit Stillman did with this text is really fantastic. And also, you know, just formally, it just clicks along and you can't, yeah. you got to keep up. Let's end it. Thank you both for talking about this poll with me. Thank you. Goodbye, 2016. Good riddance. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Odemark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.